Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. I also happen to be an adjunct faculty member at Capital University Law School, teaching a variety of courses in litigation, including a course entitled Ride-Sharing Law and Autonomous Vehicle Litigation, and I'm a one of the co-authors of a recent book published by the American Bar Association called Ridesharing Law and Liability. And my name is Kenton Steele. I'm an associate in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And in addition to my civil defense litigation work, I am also a adjunct faculty member at Capital University Law School teaching a course in ridesharing litigation. And I'm one of Zach's co-authors on the recently published uh, ride-sharing litigation book, which was published by the ABA. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. Exponential technological advances in the last two decades have transformed how we travel, how we do business, and how we communicate. Nearly every part of our daily lives are evolving and changing to incorporate the benefits offered by these new technologies. And while in many ways these new technologies offer convenience, they can also create uncertainty. For instance, how does using an in-home smart speaker impact one's right to privacy? Are ride-sharing services safe? Who is responsible if I buy a defective product from an online vendor? Are cryptocurrencies the wave of the future? or a passing fad. This podcast will explore these questions and others related to other areas of emerging technologies, and will offer insight into how the law is responding to these new issues arising in our increasingly technologically advanced world. On today's podcast, we'll be beginning our discussion on ride-sharing and legal issues related to ride-sharing. And while most of us are familiar with ride-sharing to some degree or another, This podcast series will provide an in-depth look into the origins of ride-sharing, how this type of business operates, and the laws and regulations that impact ride-sharing. So as we start this first episode and we start talking about ride-sharing law, let's just start by asking probably what I would say is one of the most basic questions that people are wondering is, who should be listening to this podcast series on ride-sharing? Given how widespread uh, the use of ride-sharing is on today's roads for transportation, uh, this podcast is going to be useful to basically anyone. Um, Whether you actually use ride-sharing services yourself, it's basically unavoidable that you will be sharing the road with ride-sharing drivers. Um, In addition to the the general information that will be useful to everyone, the information that we'll be discussing in this podcast and in this series of podcasts on ride sharing will be useful to any attorney who is asked to handle cases involving ride sharing, which again is likely to be any attorney who as part of their practice handles motor vehicle accidents. For the same reason, insurance adjusters who are handling automobile accidents in their uh, professional capacity will also get a benefit from the information we'll be presenting. Taking it a step further, um, our discussion of laws and regulations related to ride sharing and how ride sharing impacts 
mobility issues will also be useful to policymakers who are considering changes to the law related to ride-sharing services, individuals in the automobile industry whose products will, will end up being used by ride-sharing companies to some extent or another. And, and again, anyone who actually does use ride-sharing services will definitely benefit from the information in this podcast. And Kenton, now that we've kind of answered who should be listening, let's back up and kind of take a look at what is ride-sharing and, and how does it work? So ride-sharing in, in its simplest terms, the definition really is a private person-to-person transportation service, service where riders connect with drivers who use their personal cars uh, for transporting uh, passengers for a fee or a fare. Um, unlike a traditional taxi or, or car service company, uh, ride-sharing rides are set up using a smartphone app. To utilize a ride-sharing uh, company services, all a rider needs to do is download the application and create an account through the platform of that ride-sharing service. The, at that point, their smartphone's GPS will allow them to digitally hail a car, uh, basically a modern version of hailing a taxi. Now, of course, this these digital features um, allow ride-sharing companies to offer certain benefits and services that, that traditional taxi companies or car services cannot. For instance, riders can use the GPS on their phone to share their location uh, with others, allowing a friend or a family member to follow along with where they are at in their trip. Um, they can also see what the driver's suggested route is for getting to their destination. Additionally, if there are multiple people are sharing a single ride-sharing ride, they can automatically split the fare with those other passengers through the application. And <clears throat> ride-sharing also allows riders a type of flexibility in the kind of ride they want. Uh, riders can take a basic uh, ride-sharing ride if they're just looking to get to the airport or if they're with a lot of friends, can um, obtain a ride from a larger vehicle with more seating capacity, or if they want to ride in a luxury vehicle with a professional driver, that's also something that can be set up through most smartphone uh, applications for ride-sharing services. One of the um, other sort of unique features about ride-sharing as opposed to traditional taxi services or car service companies is that it's very easy for drivers to begin working as a ride-sharing driver. Uh, the, the process for applying and becoming a driver is, is not particularly extensive and doesn't take that long. Uh, typically, a person who wants to become a ride-sharing driver can do so in a matter of days. Now, Kenton, I think, I think you've done a really good job of kind of explaining what ride-sharing is. Can, can you give us kind of a, a definition um, and sum up what, how it's defined? Yeah, so as we talk about how ride-sharing is defined and what that looks like practically, um, what, 
what you really have to do is break down how a ride sharing transaction happens into separate components. Um, and for uh, most people familiar with the, this area, there are typically four separate periods or phases of a ride sharing ride that we look at to uh, explain what's happening in that transaction. In, in the first period or phase, which is typically called phase zero, that's when a driver is in their vehicle that they, again, use for uh, their personal use, and they have a smartphone uh, application from a ride-sharing service installed on that phone, but they aren't actually uh, using that application at the moment. They don't have it open. They aren't looking for rides. That's, that's phase zero. Phase one begins when the ride-sharing driver turns on the application for a given platform. At that point, the driver is then waiting uh, to be notified of a request for a ride. That phase one ends when the driver accepts a request for a ride or a, a fare. Then moving into the next phase, phase three, that starts when the driver reaches the location where the passenger is and the passenger enters the vehicle. Phase three continues from when the passenger enters the vehicle until the driver reaches the passenger's destination and the passenger exits the vehicles. Now, these phases are something we'll talk about more as we discuss various issues related to ride sharing um, and, and legal questions that can come up, uh, but understanding each of these phases and how that transaction is broken down uh, is a, a crucial step in understanding the law related to ride sharing. Now, as you've defined for us the various components of the ride-sharing transaction, and our, our listeners start to understand how this process works, I'm sure that one of the questions that, that's on a lot of people's minds, especially from a consumer's mind, is, is ride-sharing safe? The, the short answer to that is yes. Um, that ride-sharing is generally a, a safe service to utilize, um, there has been a lot of research related to the impact of ride sharing on uh, overall safety on the road. And, and there are some indicators that go different ways. For, for instance, it's very clear that an increase in the prevalence of ride sharing has reduced the rate of drunk driving. Um, it's much easier for people to um, get a ride home um, if, if they've been out for the night. But at the same time, there is there's research going the other direction that seems to indicate that uh, a high increase in the prevalence of ride sharing is also associated with a small uptick in the rate of fatal crashes. Now, this research is not uh, particularly extensive. Obviously, more time will be necessary before we can get concrete answers on what impact the ride sharing industry and its rise has had on overall safety. But for the most part, for consumers who are interested in using ride-sharing services, by and large, it is a, a completely safe service to utilize. There are obviously exceptions. Things can go wrong with anything. Um, but there's nothing to indicate that ride-sharing is any less safe uh, than being on the road uh, yourself, driving, or, or using a traditional car service or taxi service. Now, with that sort of basic information on what ride sharing is, 
Uh, I think what would potentially be helpful to listeners as we sort of build this understanding of ride sharing is to get a sense of how we got here and, and how ride sharing started. So Zach, can you tell us a little bit about when modern ride sharing sort of came about and, and got its start? Absolutely. Yeah. And in some of our other episodes, we'll be addressing kind of the start of ride sharing from a more historical perspective. But for today's purposes, what I want to look at or what we're going to talk about is really kind of the implications that relate to modern ride sharing as we know it with some of the big players here in the U.S. markets as Uber and Lyft, right? And so we see the advent of, of these technological advances kind of pushing this concept forward. 1990s, we saw the explosion of the internet right into, into people's homes. Um, and then when we saw that, what we saw was that during that time period, we started to see drivers and riders being matched on the internet. So people would go to posting boards and discussion forums when people were looking for rides. And so during the 1990s, it's, it's kind of like a fancy carpooling, for lack of a better term. We saw these people who were you know, looking for transportation, um, and they were matching on the internet. And so, you know, it was something that you may have seen previously posted on a message board, a community message board at a coffee shop or a restaurant was now being turned towards the internet. Well, what we see is a kind of a, I don't want to say famous study is probably not the right word, but a study that came out in 2006 by the Federal Transit Administration of the United States Department of Transportation, which said that next day responsiveness had been achieved in ride sharing using this internet technology, but that dynamic ride matching had not yet been successfully implemented. And so when we talk about this dynamic ride matching, what we're really talking about is instantaneous or near instantaneous. And so during 2006, the study found that a lot of people were matching for next day, meaning I need a ride tomorrow. I I go on the internet. I'm able to find someone on the internet willing to give me a ride tomorrow but I can't find someone willing to give me a ride right now. And so you fast forward just a few years and you start to see that change. And, and turning to that, that change when we saw sort of dynamic ride sharing happening, um, what, what were the companies that sort of brought that change about and, and when did they really enter the marketplace? Yeah, so... We start to see from a historical perspective here in the United States a couple of key players that kind of led the way. And so the first one is going to be probably no surprise. Everybody's heard the name Uber before, entered the marketplace in 2009. And so you see in a span of three years since the initial, uh, from that 2006 study, we start to see Uber hitting dynamic ride matching. Now, again, when they entered the market, you weren't seeing them in every single city or in every single country. I mean, you're seeing them in a limited capacity. But in 2009, they start working to harness this technology to satisfy dynamic ride sharing or ride matching. 
And so you see the you see the introduction of another company called Sidecar in 2011. And in 2012, we start to see the introduction of Lyft, one of the other now major competitors in the ride sharing uh, market space, was started in 2012. And Zach, obviously, this um, rise in dynamic ride sharing through companies, you know, offering the service of matching riders with drivers was a, a change in how transportation happened in a lot of places. And when those kind of changes happen, it creates questions as to how the law is going to respond. Um, and, and one of the places that that happens typically first is through regulations on a given industry. So with um, the information about how ride sharing came about, can you tell us a little bit about the background and history of the first regulations that impacted these ride-sharing companies. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think you hit the nail on the head when we talk about a lot of these emerging technologies. One of the things and consistent themes we're going to find throughout these discussions is that the law is working sometimes to play catch-up to these technologies, right? Where there may be a legal framework in place already, you know, the United States has a long-standing history of tort law, for example, that's established by the common law. But what we see is that in a lot of these situations, with new technology and, and these kind of new companies and business models entering these market spaces, we sometimes find lawmakers and in particular regulators working to play catch up. And so in May of 2011, we saw one of the first kind of regulatory issues, which is when a cease and desist letter was issued um, by the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency to Uber um, regarding their operations in San Francisco. And so we start to see over the, over the span of approximately two years, where California and some of their municipalities are wrestling with these ride-sharing companies trying to figure out how to regulate them and how to handle them. And so in 2013, we see California becoming the first state um, to really regulate ride-sharing companies and kind of how they operate it. Now, we're going to address this kind of much more detail in later episodes, kind of when we address the, all of the regulatory issues um, that surround ride sharing and the ride sharing companies. But what I will say, just from kind of like a historical perspective, is we see that these companies were operating in these spaces for at least a period of years before we start to see the regulators intervene. And so, at least for context of this discussion, and our episode here today, I think that's the important takeaway as we look at the kind of the history of these regulations. Thank you for joining us on today's Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Please be sure to join us next time where we'll be continuing our discussion on ride sharing and uh, diving into the incredible rise in popularity that we've seen with ride sharing in the last decade. Thank you.